So as a church family, we've been working through the Bible in a year together, and if you're here regularly, you know that I've been preaching from the Old Testament mainly, trying to show how the Old Testament drives us forward to Jesus. This morning, I'm going to work from the New Testament back to the Old. Uh, So the Old Testament drives us to Jesus, but there are also New Testament texts that really show how you can't understand, in some ways, what's going on with Jesus unless you have some grasp of what God's plan was as he revealed in the Old Covenant Scriptures. So this is a very important text uh, in Luke chapter 1. We're going to look at Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. Luke 1, 26 through 38. This is the word of the Lord. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel. Since I am a virgin. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Before we work through this text together, we're going to pray. And before we pray, uh, there have been uh, a number of people, one of the the great joys and delights of public life is we open our lives and share our joys and our sorrows and our successes and our failures. And so last week, I said, I have this really interesting opportunity on Thursday night to go to the University of Guelph and be part of an interfaith dialogue. And many of you said, ah, well, we will pray for you. Apparently not very well. Uh, then, look, how did it go? Well, how was it? Well, I'll tell you. From my very own biased perspective. 
There's four speakers, myself, a Jewish representative, an agnostic, and a Muslim. And the question we were supposed to address was, how do you know that your religion or way of life is true? Which I interpreted to mean, give an explanation for why you think your religion or way of life is true. That's what I thought it meant. Uh, the other speakers took it to mean, it seemed in my perspective, to, to, to mean something like, say, say something about why we're all okay in whatever we believe. Which is a very different question from the one that I had read. And I was the last speaker. So I, so I got up and did my best, which might not have been very good, but I did my best to explain that as a Christian, uh, Jesus Christ is central. He's God incarnate. It's only in Christ that there's atonement. It's only in Christ that there's salvation. He's the fulfillment of Old Covenant scripture. And he's the final word, which means there is not prophetic revelation after Jesus. Try to say that. Then there's a break so that the, the Muslims could observe their prayer time. And then there's question and answers afterwards. So uh, the questions were mainly directed to me, if I remember correctly. Um, and, and one of them from the Muslim imam was this. If God became incarnate and he was Jewish, does that mean that the Jews are superior to other races? And second, what is the atonement of Christ? How does his death on the cross have anything to do with making me a better person? So, that's, that's fair. So I took the second question first and, and attempted to say that the Old Covenant Scriptures give us patterns of substitutionary blood sacrifice. So on Passover, lamb is slaughtered, its blood is placed on the doorpost, that is a substitutionary sacrifice that, that keeps people from death. The Day of Atonement, there is a bull that has its blood shed for the sins of Aaron. Then there are goats that are killed. There is substitution. So saying when we come to Christ, drawing from the Old Covenant Revelation sacrificial system, we interpret Christ's death as being the actual sacrifice of atonement. That his death actually satisfies God for our sins and provides purification. I, I believe that's what I said. At least that's what I attempted to say. Then, First question, uh, I, I attempt to say that no, uh, yes, Jesus was ethnically Jewish, uh, but that doesn't mean that the Jews are intrinsically superior. I gave a couple uh, analogies as to why this is the case. I said, however, it does mean, qualification, that a thoughtful Christian should not be anti-Semitic. Because Christians worship the Son of God incarnate, who was incarnate as a Jew, and all the early apostles were Jews. That's what I said. I think. And some of you were there. If I didn't say that, you can, you can speak now and, and correct. Uh, so, so that's what I said. Uh, the Jewish representative stood up and, and uh, accused me of uh, distorting history and lying and misunderstanding atonement, uh, corrupting Jewish theology said, I didn't come here to listen to you talk about Judaism. You're supposed to be talking about Christianity. And, you know, basically, you didn't use this language exactly, but the, but the general message was, uh, you're an anti-Semite. Someone from his synagogue who was there got up while he was chastising me and left the room in tears. Someone went out to console her, and so she's out of the room, and I get up afterwards, and I say, listen, there's not going to be an emotionally satisfying response at this point. However... 
we do need to listen to what people have actually said. I made a logical claim that Christians ought not to be anti-Semitic if they're consistent with their theology. I said, you, you, I, you can't say I distorted history because I made no historical claims whatsoever. I said nothing about history. I said nothing about whether or not there's been anti-Semitism in history. So you can't accuse me of distorting history on the basis of what I actually said. Now, ironically, as an aside, it's ironic to be accused of anti-Semitism when your comment was that Christians ought not to be anti-Semitic. It's exactly the opposite of what I said. And then a category confusion from logic to history, regardless. Uh, then I tried to explain a little bit about atonement. That changed the atmosphere from we're all okay to things being a little bit more tense. But 20 minutes later, uh, half an hour later, it seemed like 8,000 years later, the, the, the young lady came back in and asked for the microphone, which they gave to her. She said, I have a question. No, it's not really a question, it's a comment. Steve, you're a liar. You are lying about history, you're lying about this, you're lying about that. And she's emotional, so she said various different things. And then she said, and I don't want a response. So the, the person with the microphone uh, came over, and these are students, it felt so badly, it felt really bad for the students. So there's this poor Muslim student who's moderating. And they have this whispered discussion, and they decide they're not going to let me say anything. So they walk past me with the microphone, say, well, we have a question from the audience for the imam. Ask the imam, the imam answers the question, and they say, well, that's the end of the night. Shut it down. That was probably the worst public experience I've had in terms of ministry. Um, first of all, because it's a misrepresentation. It isn't what I said. It's the opposite of what I said. Um, but also, it's, it's one thing to be misrepresented. It's one thing to be misrepresented about something that's important. Like, anti-Semitism in church history isn't, it, it is a terrible stain and shame for Christians, let alone for how painful it is for Jewish people. So to be misrepresented at that point is, is deeply painful for me. Um, also, to be, not as, not as a private citizen, but to be representing the Christian position and to be taken that way is likewise uh, very painful. Now, the hope is that the majority of people who were there, who were not attempting to be biased, could recognize the fairness of the exchange and what was actually said and not said. That's the hope. To the point where the Muslim imam afterwards actually said to me, well, you know, it's it's really too bad that she wasn't here when you gave your response. I would say, well, yes, uh, thank you for saying that when they gave you the mic and didn't let me talk. You know? <laughs> but you know, there was at least some recognition along those lines. So I go home and, and basically chalk it up to um, categorical failure and disaster is how that goes. Consoled greatly all the next day, by friends who would not stop talking about it and, and just made me think about it hour after hour after hour after hour after hour of the day 
and evening and night. So, always thankful for friends. Uh, always, always thankful for those people. Now, yeah. So, personal disaster is how that goes. However, I'm going to have uh, Jen come up, representing uh, Power to Change, because they're the ones who had the misfortune of bringing me in. friends. There, if it had gone well, uh, I would probably be just arrogant enough and spiritually immature enough to say, that was partly my work, you know. Actually, I was awfully clever, you know. Uh, it, it is literally impossible to take that outcome that way. Great God. Great God. It works because it's true. It's one of the things I've tried to say for so long. We don't convince people. We don't have to be that great. It's the truth of God. God will win. That's what he did. Once more into the breach, dear friends. Let's pray. Salvation is of the Lord. And so, Lord, we acknowledge that this morning. You are the God who saves. And you save through your Son, whose name is Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who does what is not possible. You are a God who is entirely greater than we can imagine. You are a God who, who works through the most impossible means and channels to achieve your design. So that with the psalmist in Psalm 115, all we can say is, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name be the glory. For your love and faithfulness endure forever. Not unto us, not unto us, O Lord, but to your name be the glory. How you work in this world is utterly shocking 
and amazing. And so we honor you, Lord God, for your wisdom that is wiser than our folly and your strength that is greater than our weakness. And we recognize that you are a God who is able to personally work in people's lives, often despite us. And you are calling your children into salvation through Jesus. Lord Jesus, we honor you because you are the champion and the deliverer. You are the Savior. And God, we honor you because your truth will be heard and your sheep will respond when you call them by name. And so, Lord, our confidence is not in the arm of flesh. Our confidence is in the living God. Help us to draw fresh strength from the fact that you actually are real. And we often actually don't expect you to do your personal work. We rely on ourselves instead. Father, help us to rely on you and you alone. For you are the God who saves. And we praise you because you have done so. In and through your Son, Jesus. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. Nazareth is just a little town. It's so unimportant that it's never mentioned in the Old Testament. In fact, there were people, there were scholars who believed that Nazareth didn't exist uh, until some inscriptions were found that named it, because it was never mentioned in the Old Testament. This is an utter, absolute backwater. One of the amazing things about God's plan, apparently, is that God never does things the way we would. God does things in the most shockingly counterintuitive way imaginable. If we were going to design the entrance of the Son of God into the world, we would likely choose today New York City, London, England, Beijing, a world-class city. Back in that day, Jerusalem, Rome. So if you were having a board meeting, strategizing bringing the Son of God into the world, and someone said, I don't know, what about Nazareth? No one would take it seriously. It's not the place to go if you want to do anything of any importance at all. And Mary is the last person on earth that you are going to select in terms of bringing the Son of God into the world through. She's betrothed to be married, so probably culturally, we don't know this for sure, but given culture, it is reasonable to assume that she's around 13 years of age. 12, 14. It's reasonable to assume this is about her age because she's betrothed. She's a young girl. In the eyes of her society, 
as a young girl, she's relatively insignificant. She's a nobody. She has very little value at all. Almost no intrinsic value. Maybe a little bit of instrumental value for what she may or may not be in the future. But as she is today, in society, she's basically a nobody. So what you have is you have God determining to work through a nobody from nowhere. That's the situation that you have here. Now, the amazing thing about this, actually, uh, in terms of hope for us, is that it means that it doesn't matter who we are or where we're from. It doesn't matter where our circumstances are. It doesn't matter where we live. It doesn't matter if the world thinks that we're important. God's eye is in every place. And, And so God says, here's this town that no one else cares about. Here's this person that no one else cares about. But she's someone who is highly favored in my eyes. The, the word favored actually it comes from the, the, the word grace. Hail Mary full of grace, right? which has been completely misinterpreted. This is, this is a better translation. You are highly favored. You are filled with the grace of God. Not that she is an intrinsic uh, dispenser of grace, but she is a receptacle that has been filled by God's grace. The claim isn't at all that she has her own grace to give other people. She's highly favored by the Lord. She has received the grace of God as a nobody from nowhere. And, and this grace then isn't earned. It's not intrinsic. It's a gift that God has given her. And it's also something which is objective. Like, what's the grace? Greetings, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. That's the objective grace. The Lord is with you. I hear that. What that means is that whoever you are and wherever you live, whatever the circumstances of your life are or are not, if the Lord is with you, then you have grace. If God is with you, you have absolutely everything you could ever need. If God is with you, the entire world may ignore you or despise you, but if God is with you, you are objectively highly favored. You are someone who is privileged and blessed regardless of what anyone else thinks. If God is with you, you are the recipient of the greatest gift imaginable, the grace of God in his presence. He has given you himself. The Lord is with you. Notice it says Mary was greatly troubled at his words. Not greatly troubled at his presence, but greatly troubled at his words. Now you know, whenever angels show up, people are terrified. And, and, and rightly so. I mean, we might like to think that if an angel manifested itself you know, to, to us, we'd be able to play it pretty cool. Uh, not likely. Okay? But Mary isn't afraid about the angel's presence. It's his words. In other words, it is a holy, awesome thing to have the Lord with you. It is not something to be flippant about. It is an enormous gift of grace. But it's also something you're supposed to take very seriously. Who is this God? He's the Holy One of Israel. He is transcendent in every way. 
He, he is high above the earth. He is righteousness itself. He, he knows all. He's all powerful. He's a refining fire. It is this God who is with you. And as much as there's great comfort in that, it's also sobering. She's greatly troubled. The Lord is with me. She wondered what kind of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor. You have found grace with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. Jesus meaning that he will save his people. Yahweh saves. The Lord saves. And then the angel gives five declarations about Jesus. He will be great. It's the first one. He will be great. In the Old Covenant scriptures, only God is ever said to be great without qualification. Someone might be great in the sight of the Lord, but only the Lord is great, full stop, no more discussion. This is, this is an adjective that only applies to the Lord, and it's applied to Jesus. He will be great. That's a characteristic of God. And will be called the Son of the Most High. Later on, in verse 35, we're told the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, it's very important to unpack Son of God language carefully through biblical categories. The, the mistake we make often in our evangelical theology is, and in our churches is that we want to say, Jesus is the Son of God, therefore he's the same substance as God. That is, therefore, if Jesus is the Son of God, he is deity. He's divine. And I will argue that that is what the phrase means. But you can't just jump there. The nation of Israel in Exodus is called the Son of God. The nation of Israel isn't divine. The Davidic king in Psalm 2 is called the Son of God. I am your father. Today I have begotten you. You are my son to the Davidic king. Angels are called sons of God in Job chapter 1. So if you're going to argue that every time Son of God, uh, the, the phrase Son of God is used, it refers to deity... You're going to have to have Israel divine, angels divine, the Davidic king divine, and that's not an argument any of us probably want to make. So how do we understand it? Israel is the son of God because they are to uniquely represent God in the world. That's what they're called to do. It trades on a functional understanding of sonship. Like father, like son. Okay? So Israel is to represent God because they're to be like God. They're to show God's holiness by obedience to God's law. That's how they will be the son of God in the world, through functional obedience and imitation. Now, in a lot of cultures, this makes more sense than it does in, in our culture. In the vast majority of history, and in a lot of cultures today, uh, people do what their parents did. So, Joseph's a carpenter. What does Jesus do? Well, he's the savior of the world. So that's the right answer. But yes, he's a carpenter as well. That's not the most important thing about him. 
Why is he a carpenter? Because you apprenticed with your parents. You, you started in, in so many economies around the world. In some ways, I wonder if this is, isn't even healthier in some ways. Business economics are all, were home economics. So that you just started helping out you know, around the farm. You just started helping out you know, in, in the carpentry. So you just helped out. And as you helped out, you learned how to do things. And so you just took over what your parents did. So like father, like son. We have that expression today. But that's how people were raised. They were raised to imitate what their parents did. The Davidic king adopted as the son of God is to rule the people as if they are working in perfect imitation of the father. Like father, like son, I will be a king, not who lords it over you, not that you worship, but I will be a king who righteously and lovingly cares for you as God the father does. I will be a good imitation of God in terms of my character and conduct for you, like father, like son. In John 5, this is the argument Jesus makes about his own sonship. Jesus argues that the father is working on this. The father is working to this day, so I'm working on this day too, even though it's the Sabbath, like father, like son. He says, the son does everything the father does, like father, like son. Now, that's a claim, that is a claim of deity, though. To do everything an infinite God does, you have to be an infinite God. Everything the Father does, the Son does. That is a claim to deity. But this is where you start moving, where you start seeing the biblical development of these themes even in the Gospel. At first, sonship isn't about ontology. That is, at first, sonship isn't about essence, it's about imitation. But to perfectly imitate an essence, you have to share that essence. So, the other sons of God do a fallible, finite, poor job imitating the Father. Jesus does a perfect job imitating the Father because he's God. Only God can perfectly function as God. Do you see him? So when we come to Son of God language through biblical categories, when we follow the logical trajectory, we are, with, we are completely within our rights to say that Son of God applied to Jesus means he shares the essence of the Father. He is equally divine. He is God. He is not less God than the Father. We can't just start with the phrase and jump to that conclusion. You need to work carefully through text before you get there. Just like in John 8, uh, Jesus says that his opponents are sons of the devil. Why? Because your father the devil was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. And you're calling me a liar even though I'm the truth and you're trying to kill me. So I can tell that your father's the devil because of how you act. Like father, like son. And then, then they say, no, no, we have Abraham as our father. And Jesus says, no, you don't. If Abraham were your father, you would do what Abraham did. Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day, or he saw my day, and he rejoiced. If you were like your father Abraham, you would rejoice too. So what he's saying isn't, has nothing to do with ethnicity. What he's saying is, like father, like son. I can tell that you're actually children of the devil because you're trying to kill me. I can tell you're not children of Abraham because you're not like Abraham. It's functional sonship. How you act shows your paternity. 
It doesn't matter what you claim. And there are an awful lot of people in our society who will claim some sort of nominal Christian status. Claim that they believe in God. But actions do speak louder than words. You can tell someone's paternity by how they act. You can tell the children of God by their imitation of God through Jesus Christ. He will be called the Son of the Most High. That's functional and ontological. It's how he will act, and it is what he is. The third claim. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Now this fulfills the messianic uh, kingship. Uh, Psalm 2, 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant. Isaiah 9, the government will be upon his shoulders. He will sit on David's throne about his government, you know, the increase of his government. There will be no end. He will sit on David's throne forever. All of these prophecies fulfilled coming together here with Jesus. He will reign on the throne of his father, David. The claim, really, is one that you can't understand without understanding the Old Testament covenant structure. This is one of the reasons I'm trying to spend so much time in the Old Testament preaching as we go through our Bible readings. You can't understand the significance of what, this, of what the angel is saying unless you understand those covenants. Unless you understand the promise in Psalm chapter 2. Unless you understand the promise of God that David will always have a descendant who will reign on the throne. And then to look back and to realize that all of David's descendants were wicked. They failed. Now, every once in a while, you got a good king. Relatively speaking, every once in a while. But the Davidic kings failed so greatly and led the people into such wickedness and apostasy that eventually even Jerusalem itself was destroyed. The temple was knocked down and the people were carted off into exile. That's where the Davidic kingship brought them. But the promises still stood. God had covenanted in promise that there would be a descendant of David who would sit on the throne and reign forever. Where was he? Well, at this time in history, the Jews didn't even have a king. They're completely suppressed under the Romans. Where's the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7, where there's the promise of the Davidic king reigning forever? Where's that? It's nowhere. And what Mary is being told by the angel is that promise, that 1,000-year-old covenant promise, today's the day that God begins to bring the fulfillment of that covenant promise into the world. 1,000 years of waiting. And today's the day. He will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. That's the fourth claim. He will reign forever. Which, this supplies you with the logic of the claim that David will always have a descendant on the throne. There's only two ways that can work. One is if you, if you have a perpetual replacement and succession. So that one king reigns for 50 years, dies, his son reigns for 30 years and dies, his son reigns for 30 years and dies, whatever. And that just keeps going on forever and ever and ever and ever. It's possible. Or, David can always have someone who reigns on the throne because there's one person who lives forever and never dies on that throne. Those are the only two ways it's possible to have an eternal reign in a lineage. And what we're told here is that it's the second option. 
he himself will reign forever. There will not be a succession. Jesus is not going to be the king and have a prince, and one day Jesus is going to move off the scene and the prince is going to take the throne. He will be king forever. He will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. And the fifth claim, his kingdom will never end. His kingdom will never end. And the reality is, even today, even this morning, we are one little infinitesimal drop in the ocean of all that God is doing in this universe. And yet, right now, this, this motley crew that we are, we are, we are a witness by our very existence of the truth that when Jesus starts to reign, it's not going to end after a 1,000-year Reich. It's not going to end after 2,000 years. He's going to reign forever. Jesus Christ began to reign, and he has been reigning for the last 2,000 years. We ourselves are part of that phenomenal reality, not phenomenal in the sense of great, but phenomenal in the sense of uh, phenomenon to be explained. We are part of that reality. We are part of the proof that what the angel said to Mary is right. Not a false messiah. Not a defeated, vanquished, messianic pretender. But someone who is still worshipped and honored as king 2,000 years after this event. And friends, if the Lord doesn't return for another 2,000 years, 2,000 years from now, there will be a group of people who are still honoring King Jesus. And eventually, he is coming back. And I say this quite literally and reverently. Uh, thank God. One day, he is coming back. Uh, and one day, we will see the establishment of his throne visibly forever and ever. That will be a time. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? This is not doubting. This is genuine concern. How is this possible? How is this going to be? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she was said to be unable to conceive within her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. Or, or literally, nothing is impossible with God, but the context is about promises. The Holy Spirit will come on you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. The Holy Spirit is the power of God to bring about this conception. The Holy Spirit, as the third person in the Trinity, uh, is going to act to bring about this conception. And the child, as a result, because it's the Holy Spirit who conceives the child, it will be a holy child. The Holy One to be born. He will share in that attribute. Uh, Conceived by the Holy Spirit, like Father, like Son, He will be holy too. The Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Not the Son of Joseph. Not the Son of Mary. The Son of God. That's the fundamental fact of His identity. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Now the word overshadow here, 
uh, is a very rare word. In fact, it's used in one other place. When the Old Testament scriptures, which were written in Hebrew, were translated into Greek, the New Testament's written in Greek, a little bit of Aramaic, but mainly Greek. When the, New Te- when the Old Testament scriptures were translated into Greek, when Exodus 40 was translated, and Exodus 40 is that climactic chapter where the tabernacle is finally constructed, and the Shekinah glory, the glory cloud of God, fills it. Because the tabernacle is just a tent, unless God's living in it. There's nothing significant whatsoever about the curtains. It's the presence of God. And when the presence of God fills it, it becomes a holy place. The holy of holies was not intrinsically holy. It was only holy because Yahweh manifested himself there in a special way. When the cloud in Exodus 40 filled the tabernacle, the Greek word in translation was the same word here for overshadow. The cloud overshadowed the tabernacle. If you're reading the text thoughtfully, given all the imagery, what the angel is saying is this, Mary, the Holy Spirit and the power of the Most High God is going to come upon you. The child conceived in you is going to be the Son of God, the Son of the Most High, the Holy One. And in the same way that the presence of God made the tabernacle the holy, or filled the Holy of Holies, that glory and holiness is going to be in your womb from the moment of conception. The Holy of Holies is taking up residence in the womb of a nobody from nowhere. And what's going on inside of the body of the young virgin is more miraculous and glorious and holy and awesome than what took place in Exodus 40 when the glory of God filled the tabernacle. Because holy space, holy places, are what they are because of the presence of God alone. And you can't have a more intimate presence with God than with God himself in your womb. And that's what Mary's experiencing. After all, nothing's impossible with God. In case you didn't know. There's an amazing thing. So, so often, these things that we really should be able to meditate upon throughout the rest of time, with just lost in wonder, love, and praise. The Bible routinely treats it almost no big deal. Because there is a God after all. Mary, how will this be? 
It will be because there's God. Like, like, why do we have such a hard time introducing reality that there, there, there is a God who acts, who does things? Mary, don't be surprised. Mary, the, the covenant the promises are going to be fulfilled. How could they not be? There's a God. Mary, your womb is going to be the Holy of Holies. How can, there, how can it not be? There's a God. Of course he's going to do these things. Nothing is impossible with God. All of the things that you think are utterly, absolutely impossible, all of the things you think that God can't work through, all of the things you think you know, that are, to- like are utter and complete dead ends, it is for you. It's impossible for you. But, Mary, Dave. I'm not going to go around the whole room. <laughs> Nothing's impossible for God. Particularly when he has promised. And then Mary says this. I am the Lord's servant. The, the word she uses literally, now this, this, I go back and forth about, about this, because there's a different context. In, in, we, we think about slavery in a different context than in the first century. We think of slavery mediated through 1800s, pre-Civil War. I understand all of that. What Mary literally says is, I am the Lord's slave. In other words, she says, I completely submit myself to God. Completely. I am the Lord's slave. May it be to me as you have said. May your word to me be fulfilled. And that, of course, is the only response. God, you are, you are going to fulfill your promises. Dispose of me as you wish. Do in and through me as you see fit. This is not the path I would have chosen. This is not the outcome that I was looking for. Given my own agenda and... Lord, Lord, maybe do this with someone else. Lord, are you sure there can't be another way? Lord, Lord, well, well, let's compromise. You give me the overall plan, but then let me fill in some of the details. Mary doesn't do that at all. Lord, I put myself, body, soul, and mind at your disposal. You have a plan. I am your slave. May your word in me be fulfilled. You do realize that although obviously this is a very special circumstance, you do realize that God is still at work in our lives like this today calling us to be obedient to his word, following him, but also submitting ourselves to his will, whatever that will is for our lives. And so one thing that Mary really does do, for sure, is Mary here does model for us a proper response to the Lord, to the Lord's word. This is how we are to act. This is how we are to receive what God has done. What he's doing is amazing, But we also are to submit ourselves to it entirely. I am the Lord's slave. 
Now, it's also a great plan. Right? Now, there are, don't make no mistake, there are massive personal costs for Mary with this. It's not going to be, it's the, it's the very next chapter where you're given a little, bit, a little hint of this. He will cause the rising and falling of many, and a sword will pierce your own heart too. Being the mother of Jesus, in his public ministry and death, would have been one of the most painful experiences that anyone could imagine. But the plan is worth following. Lord, you have a great and awesome plan. It hinges on Jesus. I am your slave. Direct me as you see fit. May God help us. May God help us to grasp some of what he's doing and how great his plan in Jesus actually is. And may he help us to respond uh, appropriately. I'm going to ask our musicians to come uh, and lead us in a closing song.